Let's pray together. Father, we praise you because you do indeed shine in all that's fair. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to feel what it is that we were the prodigal, that we were rebellious and foolish, that we misused everything that you gave to us, that we squandered our opportunities, that we rebelled against you, and as good as wished you dead. And in your kindness and indescribable mercy, you sent your son and gave him in our place and reconciled us to yourself. And then, Lord, when, when you caused us to repent and you caused us to return, it was like you ran to us, having been watching for us. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to feel how forgiven we are, how mercied we have been after having treated you so badly. And Lord, we pray that this would make us people who, who are both content with what you've given to us and also ready to forgive those who wrong us. Ready to forgive even those who maybe have not fully satisfied what they need to do in their offers of apology. Lord, we pray that you would make us large-hearted and Christ-like. We pray that you would make us like yourself. And we ask that you do it through your word, by the power of your spirit, for the glory of your great name. In Christ's name, amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Genesis chapter 45, and we'll be looking at this passage where Joseph forgives his brothers. And as you make your way to Genesis 45, as you find your way to that text, I would just ask you to consider whether there has been something in your life that has been difficult for you to forgive, whether this is a person who did something to you that was wrong, they harmed you, they, they wronged you in some way, and it's been very hard for you to come to the place where you can forgive them of that trespass and move past it. And, and as, you, as you think about that, I would also invite you to consider what might be the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. In other words, uh, what, what, is, what is the, um, the worst nightmare, so to, speak, so to speak, that you can imagine? And right, right away in this text, those two things are going to come together. We are going to see right away in this text a remarkable forgiveness at the moment when the worst thing that could possibly happen to Joseph's brothers 
happens to them. So let's just look together at Genesis 45. And in these first eight verses, we'll also see the way that Joseph has this glorious understanding of God's providence and the way that Joseph is able to forgive. So look with me at Genesis 45, verse 1. You know, we, we saw a couple of weeks ago last week I was at Hunsinger Lane Baptist Church with Sam Amati. I would encourage you to pray for him and pray for that church. Sam has recently become the pastor there, and uh, it, he, he's a good man and a great work's being done there, and, and I would urge you to pray for them. Um, the week before that we saw in Genesis 44 how, how Judah interceded on behalf of Benjamin. And, and that brings us to this moment when, as Joseph has been listening to the way that Judah is giving himself in, in, in Benjamin's place, we read here in Genesis 45, 1, then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. Now, I assume that you know uh, what's going to happen in this story. Many of you have read this text. If you don't know what's going to happen this, in this story, um, uh, you're about to find out. But uh, imagine, if you can, imagine what it would feel like to be one of Joseph's brothers. And the Lord of all Egypt, you don't know he's Joseph, but the Lord of all second in command to Pharaoh, is obviously emotionally in turmoil, and then he gives this command that everyone is to leave the room. Everyone out. And you don't know what's going on. What is happening with this man before whom we are guilty? Because the money was in our sacks, the silver cup was in our sacks, and he was about to take from us Benjamin, which at this point is like the worst thing that can happen to these guys because now they've got to go home to their father without their father's beloved son. And everyone, everyone is commanded to leave the room. And then verse 2 he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. There are probably, you know, bodyguards. There's like a detachment of soldiers probably standing by for Joseph. They're just outside the room, and they're hearing him in his turmoil, in his emotional distress. He wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Probably an emissary or a courier immediately carries the news. To Pharaoh, verse 3, and Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. And if you're one of Joseph's brothers, and for all those long years, we're, we're going to read in this passage that there are five years left of the famine, uh, which, which means that we're in year two of the seven years of famine, and Joseph gave that prophecy when he was 30 years old, that there would be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of, of famine, which means we're nine years in, which means Joseph is 39 years old. Joseph is 39 years old. He's uh, second in command in all of Egypt. And if you're his brothers, you don't know that you've been interacting with him. The last time you saw him was when he was 17 and you sold him into slavery. And for Joseph's brothers... That was, if not the worst thing they had ever done, certainly one of the worst things that they had ever done. And the way that the world works, when, uh, the way that God has set up the world to work, when we do awful things, they eat at us, don't they? We remember them. We have nightmares about these things. In, in quiet moments, 
when no one is around, maybe we're out under the stars, these things come to our minds and, and we contemplate the wrongs that we have done. So for the last 22 years, these guys have had this nagging at them and they've known that they were wrong and it came out that they knew earlier when they stood before Joseph and, and they said, uh, God has found out the guilt of, of what we've done. For we heard our brother's cries when we sold him into slavery. So, so the worst possible thing. I mean, this is worse than just Joseph turning up alive. Because not only has he turned up alive to show their guilt, to show the way that they defrauded their father and lied to their father, telling their father, look, we found this coat and it's all bloody. Identify it. Is it your son's? Not only that... He's Lord of all Egypt. He is in power. He is in position to make them suffer as no one else on earth could make them suffer. He can make them pay like nobody can make them pay. So I suspect that they rightly feel a holy terror, a justified horror at this moment, when he says, I am Joseph, is my brother, is my father, sorry, still alive? And then the text tells us there in verse 3, but his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Rightly so. These guys are struck dumb. They, they are at a moment where they can't speak. They, can't, they can barely process what they are perceiving. That their brother, whom they sold into slavery, stands before them, not only alive, but Lord of all Egypt. This, this word here that's translated dismayed, it's the exact same word used in Psalm 2. And, and I think, you know, Acts 4.25 tells us that David wrote Psalm 2. I think that David was probably thinking about Joseph in his glory being revealed to the rebels and dismaying them when he wrote the words, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify, that's the word that they render, same Hebrew term here, and terrify them in his fury. In other words, when, when sinners, when, re, when rebels, unrepentant sinners, stand before the king, God, to give an account, they're going to feel before God the way that Joseph's brothers feel before him at this moment. They're going to know everything that they've done. They're going to know, my greatest problem was not what people did to me. My greatest problem was not uh, my failure to make more money. My, my greatest problem was the way that I treated God. Everybody's going to know that. You're going to know that. I'm going to know that. We're all going to know that. It's not the way that other people wronged us that's going to be our biggest problem. It's going to be the way that we wronged God. And if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, this is what we mainly want you to hear. We mainly want you to hear that the biggest issue you've got in your life is the way that you have rebelled against God. The biggest problem in your life is that you are a sinner. You have transgressed the Holy One. This is your Father's world. He created this magnificent place for your joy. And you've ruined it. We've all done so. I've ruined it. And the good news is that we can sing with that hymn to the gracious Savior of our ruined lives.
Because God in his mercy makes a way for us to experience forgiveness. That's the good news. That's the good news. We don't have to be those who are spoken to in his fury and terrified by his wrath. But what we have to do is what Psalm 2 goes on to say, kiss the son. That is, bow the knee to King Jesus. Do homage to him, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in the way. So the brothers are dismayed in Joseph's presence. This is the worst thing that could possibly happen to them. Verse 4, Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. Can you believe that? This is amazing. He doesn't say, Officers of the guard, shackle these men. Psalm 105 says that they put Joseph in shackles. They put an iron collar on his neck. He doesn't call for an iron collar. He doesn't say, go find Potiphar and tell him he's got some more slaves. He doesn't say, that house of, that prison house where I was put, go put them there. He doesn't say any of those things. He says to these guys who took him from his beloved father, who had him sold into the unclean realm of the dead, removing him from the land of promise. He says to them, come near to me, please. He's so polite to them, so gentle to them. Where does this come from? Well, as I was reflecting on Joseph and the way that we've seen him live, I really think that Joseph has learned the secret of life from his meditation on as, we've, as I've indicated throughout this time in the Joseph narrative, Joseph lives before Moses writes Genesis. But I suspect that Joseph had the stories uh, that had been passed down from Adam uh, through Enoch, through Abraham and, and the others. I suspect that Joseph has been meditating upon the promises. And here's what I think Joseph has learned. He's learned the secret of life. The secret of life, if you want to turn there, is in Philippians 4. This is the secret of life. Paul tells it to us. Paul says in Philippians 4, verse 11, he says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. And and then he goes on, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things. Through Christ who strengthens me. And then if you think, well, what is the secret, Paul? How, what is the lesson that you learned? Well, I think he's just gone through it in the preceding verses. When he says, for instance, in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And then he, he goes on to say, verse 6, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, present your requests to God. And then in verse 8, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about those things. And, and I suspect this is what Joseph has been doing. Joseph, he didn't, in other words, he has not been nursing a grievance. If Joseph had been nursing the grievance against these guys, when the moment came, it wouldn't have been, come near to me, please. It would have been, bring out the shackles and the iron collar. 
and whatever instruments of torture were at his disposal, which would have been plenty. If he, if he had been nursing the grievance for all those long 22 years, you know what that grievance would have been doing? Poisoning his own soul. And so I don't know what's been done to you. I don't know how you've been wronged. But I know, I, I mean, I, I've heard some of the stories. People in this room, the ways that you've suffered. If you nurse the grievance, it will poison you. You have to come to a place where you can do what Paul is talking about here. You have to come to a place where the Lord is enough for you. You have, a, you have to come to a place where you know the worst thing in my life is not what somebody else did to me. It's what I've done to God. That's true about all of us. I don't care what you've suffered. I don't mean to be insensitive in putting it that way. Whatever you've suffered, the worst thing in your life is not what you've suffered. It's what you've done to God. I think Joseph understands that. And it liberates him. It makes it where he can say to these guys that wronged him, come near to me, please. And I would add this. If Joseph had responded the way that in our flesh, in our, in our unregenerate and sort of normal, human, worldly impulses would have us respond, let them have it. They deserve it. Make them feel it. If he had responded like that, there might have been a little bit of, yeah, that's what they had coming to them that, that we would feel. But over time, we would begin to think, yeah, maybe, he overdid, maybe he overdid it. Maybe, maybe it was more suffering than they deserved. In other words, we would begin, I think, to question it. But if he responds like this, if he forgives, how do we respond? Our estimation of Joseph just rises. And it doesn't stop rising. And we never come to a place where we think, maybe he shouldn't have forgiven those guys. No, we only and always respect him more for it. This week I was listening to a sermon preached by uh, Tony Evans who is an African-American, very famous preacher, great preacher. Um, it was a Wednesday night session, and um, he talked about a time when there was a, guy, a younger white guy in his house who called him boy. And he talked about the, the, the response that, he, that welled up within him when this guy spoke to him that way. And, and he said to his congregate, predominantly black church, he said to his congregation, you know the history of that word. You know about how in this country, uh, young little white children could call old black men boy because they were black. They had that, they had that privilege, he said. And he, he said, I held my peace, but I was contemplating how am I going to respond to this. And then he talked about how another white man came into the room. This was it. He was relating this was in his house. Another white man, same age as the other white man who had just addressed him this way, and that first white man called that guy a boy too. And he realized, oh, this is just the way that he talks to people. He's not demeaning me. He's not using the word that way. 
So what happened for Pastor Tony Evans was he restrained himself, he controlled himself, he let the events play out, and he did not respond in anger. He did not confront that man in anger, and then it turned out that there was no intended offense. He was offended, but there was no intended offense, and, he, and, and then he let it go. And as I'm thinking, as I'm listening to this, I'm thinking to myself, I respect Tony Evans even more having heard this story. And that's how we respond to Joseph. We respect him because of his ability to forgive. Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. So don't miss this. Another aspect of Joseph's ability to forgive is Joseph's understanding of God's providence. Joseph understands. God sent me to Egypt God put me through those trials of being enslaved and then being wrongly imprisoned. And then God was through all that preparing me for the moment when the, the cupbearer would remember how I interpreted his dream. And at just the right moment, I would stand before Pharaoh and reveal his dream to him and be in position to instruct Pharaoh on how to prepare through the years of plenty for the years of famine. God sent me before you to preserve life. So what Joseph has done is he has come to understand God's providence and he has adopted God's perspective on the matter. Joseph's perspective here is God's perspective. Joseph's perspective is God was using my difficulties to grow me and was using my difficulties to get me in position to be where I am now. As Lord of all Egypt, if Joseph had exacted vengeance, I think there would be something in us that would think, Joseph, why are you nursing this grievance? The Lord exalted you over all Egypt. This has clearly worked out for your good. And I think we would think, why can't you... Forgive. Why can't you see what God has done? But, but Joseph's already there. Joseph sees what God has done. So let me, let me, you know, we're not always going to know the end of the story. We're not always going to know how the Lord is preparing us or how the Lord is positioning us. So you're going to have to take it on faith. You're going to have to take Romans 8.28 on faith. You're going to have to believe that God is working everything together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And you may, I mean, I hope that nobody in this room finds themselves in shackles with an iron collar around their neck. I suspect that, I mean, I, you know, I, I look around and I think to myself, I'd rather have that than what some people in this room are going through. I'd rather have that. And we just have to believe 
We have to trust. And I think that the Lord has established a proven track record and shown himself to be worthy of our trust. So we need to, if, if we're going to forgive, we're going to need to adopt the Lord's perspective on what's going on. Joseph says here in verse 5, God sent me before you to preserve life. Now we're going to see that phrase again, so I'm going to keep going here. He says in verse 6, For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So notice how in verse 5, God God sent me before you. And then again in verse 7, God sent me before you. And then that that phrase in verse 5 was to preserve life. In verse 7, it's to keep alive for you many survivors. That phrase, to keep alive, is the exact same construction used back in Genesis chapter 6, verse 20. As the Lord was telling Noah to build the ark to keep people alive. It's also used in Genesis 19, 19, as the Lord is bringing Lot out of Sodom to keep them alive to keep uh, Lot and his daughters alive. Now, when we notice something like this, here's what I think happens. We start thinking in terms of of God's salvation of Noah and his family at the flood in light of God's salvation of Lot and his daughters at Sodom. And when we were in Genesis 19, I pointed to all the parallels between uh, the flood and Sodom. And now we add in here the salvation of Joseph's brothers by means of Judah's self-sacrificial substitutionary offering of himself and by means of the one that they all thought was dead, who's actually alive, now extending forgiveness to them. So I think that Moses means for his audience to think in terms of God saving his people at the flood, saving uh, Lot and his daughters from Sodom, through judgment on the wicked, and now saving his chosen patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel, 11 of the 12, through the forgiveness of the brother that was dead but is alive, and through the, the that's Joseph, and through the, the intercession of the brother who gave himself in the place of the condemned one, that's Judah, in place of Benjamin. And if it's not clear to you what I'm driving at here, This is exactly the way that the New Testament speaks of the salvation that God has brought about through Christ. Jesus speaks of the destruction of the ungodly in terms of the flood, in terms of the destruction of Sodom. And through Jesus, our brother who interceded for us, who gave himself in our place, our brother who though he was dead is alive and ready to forgive the rebels, That's the salvation that we enjoy. That's the salvation being anticipated. All the groundwork for it is being laid here in the book of Genesis. And I don't know that, I mean, I'm not telling you that Moses had a fully conceived picture of all of this, but I think Moses means for you to associate the flood with Sodom, with Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers through Judah's intercessory uh, uh, prayer to Joseph. 
Then look at verse 8. So it was not you who sent me here. This is, this is part of Joseph's ability to forgive. He understands what God is doing. It was not you who sent me here, but God. God is preparing you. God is positioning you. And God will comfort you. And God will put you in position to have an opportunity to say to those who have wronged you, I forgive you because I understand God's providence. It was not you who sent me here, but God. He, God, has made me father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. I mean, it's almost like Joseph is saying, you remember those dreams I had? Remember those? Verse 9, hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph. And then a lot of the stuff that he just said in verse 8 is going to be repeated here in verse 9. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. So Joseph has forgiven his brothers, those who most wronged him. He forgave them because he understood God's providence, because he embraced God's perspective, and I think because he himself knew that he had experienced God's forgiveness. And now what he's going to do is he's going to bring about restored fellowship. Look at verse 10. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. But the key words there, I think, are you shall be near me. It's like he's saying to them, we are going to be family. In, in coming chapters, as the Egyptians deal with the seven years of famine, they're going to run out of money. And they're not going to have any more funds to buy grain from Joseph. And so they're going to sell to Joseph all their animals and all their tools in order to get grain. <clears throat> and then they're going to run out of that too. And so they're going to say to Joseph, essentially, all we have is our ability to work. All we can do now is sell ourselves to you in exchange for food. And so they do that. And then they say to Joseph, once that's happened, you have saved our lives. You've saved our lives. These guys, Joseph's brothers, they don't sell themselves into slavery to Joseph in Egypt. They don't become slaves. They belong to Joseph. They enjoy direct access to the one who is a father to Pharaoh. They are going to enjoy the fellowship and the generosity of the one who is ruler of all Egypt because of the forgiveness that he's extended to them, because of the reconciliation that comes about between them. Forgiveness is glorious. Reconciliation is glorious. You shall be near me, Joseph says to these guys. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. And we know from the narrative that it's not Joseph that reminds them of their wrong. 
You know, at the end of, at the, end of the book, they come to him again, and they're, they're really concerned that now that Jacob has died, maybe he's going to exact vengeance. So they're bringing up the wrong. And Joseph assures them, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. This is dealt with. You're forgiven. So, so one thing I'm saying there, you know, I, I would encourage you, if you, if you want to read more on this, I would encourage you to get Ken Sandy's book, uh, Peacemaking. Um, and one thing that Ken Sandy says about forgiveness is that when you forgive somebody, um, there's this great little rhyme that, that we've talked about before. Um, it, it, it says, good thoughts hurt you not, uh, gossip never, friends forever. So good thoughts. You're not going to be contemplating how they wronged you in the past. You're going to think good thoughts about this person that you've forgiven. If they, they come to you, they ask for forgiveness, you extend forgiveness. I mean, in this case, Joseph has kind of forgiven them even. You know, he's heard them say that they were wrong, and he's seen Judah offer himself, and the forgiveness is full and free. Good thoughts. Joseph's going to think good thoughts about these guys going forward. Hurt you not. He's not going to bring this up and use it as a weapon against them. There aren't going to be threats. Listen, if you don't do what I say, we might get that iron collar out. No, no, no weaponizing of the past that's been forgiven. Gossip never. I think we can probably be assured that it wasn't Joseph's policy to go around talking about what his brothers had did to him, done to him. You see those guys that are, I mean, eventually they're going to become like uh, Pharaoh's chief shepherds. You see those guys that I made chief shepherds? Let me tell you about how they treated me when I was 17. No, I think, I think that's probably over and done with and gone. Friends forever, you shall be near me. We're going to have fellowship together. This is, this is glorious. And listen, I don't mean to minimize how difficult this is. I know this is supernatural. This is miraculous. If you're able to do this, it will be because you have experienced the new birth. And the new birth comes about from you experiencing that you most wronged God. And then you fall on your face before God as the guilty sinner, and you experience him declare you righteous by faith. And, and you get up thinking to yourself, there was no way I could have paid that debt. How could I not forgive those who have these little paltry, petty debts against me? Or oh, they owe those little paltry, petty debts to me. How could I not forgive them the way I've been forgiven? He continues, verse 11, There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and all your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. He's saying, look... You're forgiven. We're reconciled. You're going to be near me. I'm going to provide for you. Verse 12, And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. He's been speaking through them to, through an interpreter to, to work uh, to this point. Verse 13, You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And again, I think there are perhaps, uh, there's, there's a historical event here that informs David saying, kiss the son. You know, this is the, this is the kind of reconciliation that comes about 
when Christ reigns. Um, Then at the end of verse 15, after that, his brothers talked with him. I think this recalls the way that back in Genesis 37, when they're so disgusted with him, verse 4, Genesis 37, 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. But now, now that forgiveness has happened, reconciliation has happened, the promise of provision has come, now they're able to talk freely. And for the brothers, note what's happened. The brothers are no longer rejecting the one whom the Lord has designated, the one whom God has designated as Lord, right? That's what they were doing back in chapter 37. God designates Joseph as Lord. The brothers hate it. They reject him. Now he's Lord. There's nothing they can do about it. And so they embrace this, and his brothers talked with him. Genesis 45, verse 15. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh. I think this is another uh, aspect of God causing everything that Joseph does to prosper. This is God's favor upon Joseph that Pharaoh is not offended. That Pharaoh, that it's not Pharaoh now who is saying, Oh, the guys that sold him into slavery will have justice. No, Pharaoh's happy about this. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this, load your beasts, and go back to the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households, and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones, for your wives, bring your father, and come. Have no concern for your goods. That That garbage that you're going to leave back there in the land of Canaan, don't even bother bringing those broken down tools. Don't worry about anything that you leave behind. For the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so. Verse 21, And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. You know, Pharaoh is essentially saying to these guys, um, your worldly goods, don't worry about those things. And, and the, the reason that you can be free from concern about all that is because of everything that I'm going to give you, which is so much better. And this is essentially what should liberate us from worldliness and from materialism The fact that God the Father has promised us the new heavens and new earth. And he's he's promised to meet all our needs and to provide for us everything that we could ever wish for. That's the promise. So we should be free from materialism and concern for worldly goods. Uh, Verse 23, to his father, Joseph sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. I I think this is like him saying, um, Judah, you're not to say anything to Simeon about how Simeon wanted to kill me. And Uh, Reuben, you're not to say anything to Judah about how it was his idea to sell me into slavery. Don't quarrel on the way. Guys, this is over. This is done. We're at peace. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph 
is still alive. The same language there in verse 26 that we saw back in verse 3. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Now, if you can, imagine yourself in Jacob's place at this point. And 22 years ago, you gave up any hope that your beloved son was alive. And then these renegades... (laughs) You know, these guys that you're not really sure whether or not, I mean, one of them, Reuben, went up and defiled his couch. You understand what I'm saying. And, and Judah had his thing with Tamar. You, you've got reasons to be suspicious of these guys. And they come to you and they say, um, remember that time when we brought you the, the coat of many colors and it was all ripped and it was all bloody? Well, that, we were lying to you. He's alive. He's alive and he is Lord of Egypt. Where there was no hope whatsoever, there's life. Life from the dead. And he's forgiving. (laughs) What a picture of the gospel. They told him, verse 26, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb. So this, this is like, you know, the brothers back in verse 3 being dismayed at his presence. He is dumbfounded. It's like he can't perceive anything that's going on. He's so overwhelmed by this news. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, I mean, this would be like, you know, the president sending the limousines. And, and you look out there and you see the wagons that are like the limousines of Egypt and you see all the plenty loaded upon them and there's no other way to explain this. The spirit of their father Jacob revived and Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Uh, back in chapter 37, Jacob had said in verse 35, well, we read there, all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Well, those are false words, aren't they? He's alive. He's alive and he's reigning over Egypt. This is a great story. It's a story that shows us the grace of God. It's a short story that previews the even better story. The even better story that involves the flood of God's righteous wrath falling one day on sinners, but first on Christ. So So that those who had inhabited Sodom could be delivered from all that iniquity, to be told, let us with confidence draw near. You know, it's like Joseph saying, come near to me, please. The best thing about all this is not just that our sins are forgiven, not just that we're not going to suffer what's due to us. The best thing about it is the joy that we will have with a reconciled father who, I mean, You know, just a picture of what it's like is is that that father of the prodigal son saying to the older brother, you were always with me. You were always with me. 
the best thing about all this is that we know God and we have fellowship with him and we're confident that he loves us. I mean, the Bible says these stupendous things, things that are frankly difficult to even imagine, that he rejoices over his people, that he sings over them in his love. If you're here and you're an unbeliever, I would urge you to uh, hear the words of Psalm 2. Therefore, O kings, rebel kings, be wise. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in the way. And see that there's nothing better for you than being reconciled to God. There's nothing better that you could hope for than experiencing God's forgiveness. There's nothing better that you could hope for than being in God's presence, enjoying God's provision forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that it would reshape, reform our thoughts of who we are and how we're to live. And Lord, we pray that because we've experienced the forgiveness that you extend, we pray that we would be like Joseph and like the Lord Jesus, ready to forgive, looking for opportunities to forgive. Lord, we pray that you would free our hearts from concern for the things of this world. Convince us that the best of the new heavens and new earth will be provided for us. And Lord, we pray that you would make it where we just can't not talk about this good news. We pray that you would make it so that when we counsel people that suffer, this good news is what we offer. When we seek to encourage those who are downtrodden or discouraged, your love and your forgiveness and what you promise, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to hold these things out as gloriously as they are. We pray that you would use us to bring healing and reconciliation and hope and joy to many. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.